I'm not sure what your phobias or fears are. I had an aunt who hated snakes, a best friend who hated snakes. I've never much liked heights. When I was little, it was fire. There'd been a lot of fires in my neighborhood. It's fair to say we're living in anxious times. We all have our own phobias, and now we're having to deal with a pandemic. There's a war going on, um, and we have our own phobias and fears to deal with, obviously. Well, my next guest set to find out more about her phobias and anxieties, how to get over them maybe, or really how to live with them. Joining me now is Eva Holland, author of Nerve, Adventures in the Science of Fear. She's also a correspondent for Outdoor Magazine, and she joins me from Whitehorse. Eva, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I guess like all good things, um, the, the, the idea of diving into a subject often starts with a very unique personal experience or a unique personal experience, I should say. And in your case, that, that's exactly what happened. It is. Yeah. I, um, it, you know, I, I knew for a long time that I had a fear of heights, but I, I live in the Yukon, as you said, and most of my friends spend their time playing in the mountains. And so I had to figure out a way to, to play in steep terrain, uh, too, even, even though it, um, uh, bothered me to do so sometimes bothered is an understatement. Um, but the, the book started because of a particular panic attack that I had on a nice climbing trip in Northern British Columbia. Yeah. I've always hated heights as well. So the moment I, st- I started into your book, I'm like, I'm going to be able to relate, relate to this because I've never been a big fan of heights either. So you decided at that point, I gather to at least understand the fear. Yeah. I wanted to understand what was happening to me. I had had this, you know, previously I'd been able to sort of like maybe be a little embarrassed, but, but under control, you know, maybe I, maybe I would cry or say something embarrassing. Um, but on this one particular incident, I I really lost control of my body and, and put myself and others in danger in the situation we were in. And, and I thought I need to understand what's happening to me. You know, the first step to changing it is to even understand, um, what is going on right now. And yet I know so many people and, and I think we're all, you know, I wouldn't say guilty of it, but we're all responsible for it. Many people who have fears simply just avoid them. Um, as life goes on, if you don't like heights, you stay on solid ground. If you don't like snakes, you avoid snakes, for instance. What made you decide that maybe the right way was to explore? You know, I think avoidance is a reasonable strategy. If, if you can do it without sort of overly impacting your life, I, I don't think everybody has to sort of go through this kind of dreadful, hard process of, of trying to sort through their fears and, and learn to, to modify or control them. Um, but but for me, it was really making my life smaller. It was it was affecting me both personally and professionally. It affected my social life here in Whitehorse, and you know I'm a I'm a professional uh, adventure writer, um, so it was also sort of limiting my professional prospects. And I I felt like for me this wasn't accept- an acceptable limit. Um, other people might you know set their bar differently. What did you do uh, when you started out to figure out the roots of of, of this fear? what steps did you take and what did you find out? Well, the very first thing I did um, based on, you know, my, my real ignorance of the subject is I thought, you know, we have this cultural idea of, you know, we just got to push through and face, face down our fears and kind of, you know, like I picture like the, you know, the Kool-Aid jug smashing through the wall (laughs) in in those old commercials, Um, you know, just break, break through to the other side. And, um, and so the first thing I did is I went skydiving. Um, before I had done much, much reading or anything, I thought if I can just do the scariest thing I can think of, 
uh, and survive, I'll be, I'll be fixed. <laughs> um, <laughs> that sounds like, I mean, I, I can't even, I, I have no interest in skydiving, but, but wow. Uh, me, me neither you know <laughs> it was um well it was not a cure for my fear of heights as it turns out um unfortunately the gopro uh, that they fitted me with failed otherwise there would be video of me screaming expletives through 30 seconds of free fall um alas the footage is lost but um yeah i i survived but i did not feel good about any of it it was it was something i was able to force myself to do but i but as I, you know, as I then dug into the science of what we know about how to treat, you know, phobias and, and that sort of thing, um, I understood that, that it wasn't about forcing through, it's about changing your patterns and, and being able to remain calm, not just sort of like gritting your teeth through the scariest thing um, you can think of. And, and there's no change that comes from just forcing like that without the work to sort of learn a new pattern in your brain and your body. I thought about that reading your book as well, because as a journalist, if I, you know, I've been in war zones, I've been in things that are very uncomfortable. I realized that every time I do anything I don't like, I take a deep breath beforehand um, mm. just to sort of settle yourself before you go do something that you don't really want to do. Um, what, what techniques or what did you figure out about how at least to conquer that fear or try to live with that fear of heights? For me, it was um, initially a really gradual approach. I I tried to use um, learning to rock climb as sort of a DIY exposure therapy. And, and what I understood from the, from the um, journal articles that I read in, in the scientific literature was that it needed to be gradual and it needed to be really kind of gentle. Um, learning to, you know, remain calm with one foot off the ground and then two feet off the ground and then, you know, climbing a little higher and, rather than pushing, just trying to, to rebuild the structures in my brain that tell me what is safe and what isn't. Um, that was really hard, slow work. It was somewhat effective for me. Uh, and then later on in the process, I did um, find a, a quicker route to, to some relief, which was I went to Amsterdam for an experimental drug treatment. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that because you did try. I mean, there are a lot of therapies that there's always someone out there with something to offer you to cure what ails you, for instance, um, you tried some of these, you tried some of these, these help aids, so to speak, to try to conquer anxiety and fear. Did any of them work or what, what did you find? They all worked to varying degrees with the exception of the skydiving, <laughs> which was my, my own, uh, self-medication, bad yeah. prescription. Yeah. 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 <laughs> highly ineffective. Um, they all worked for me to different degrees and they all involve different levels of, of work and, and different amounts of money as well, you know, different, different levels of access for people. Um, one of the other things I was struggling with was trauma from a series of car accidents. And I, I tried a therapy called EMDR for sort of my flashbacks and, and hypervigilance while driving. And that was very effective for me. Um, a strange experience, but, but effective. Yeah, what is EMDR? It stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it is a therapy that was developed in, in Northern California <laughs> uh, in the late 80s and early 90s that involves a, a trained practitioner um, guiding you through your, your traumatic memories uh, while moving, while prompting you to move your eyes back and forth in kind of a rhythm. Uh, they do that sometimes just by wagging their finger back and forth or with um, the use of lights or uh, mine was based on sort of these pulsing pods that vibrated in my hands that prompted my eyes to move left and right. Um, 
And it's not fully understood. And it was dismissed through much of the 90s as, as pseudoscience. Uh, but, but it has been proven in, in a number of, of studies at this point to, to ease the effects of traumatic memories on people. And they just don't really know why. So it, so it still um, engenders some skepticism. But for me, it was something about the physical nature of having to move my eyes um, seemed to help address the fact that trauma is, is, physical, is a physical response, not just something that we sort of think about and dwell on, you know, it's, it's in our bodies and, and we react with, you know, struggling to breathe or um, tensing up and these sorts of things. Um, and uh, so that was a really strange and interesting experience. I hadn't really done much sort of formal therapy before that. Right. Because I was reading again that, that the fear of heights actually goes back, and this is so common. I mean, I, as a child, I had this deathly fear of fire because there'd been a fire behind our house and a series of fires in my neighborhood where I was growing up in Montreal. Yours too was a childhood experience um, that, that brought that sort of fear of heights. I think so. It's hard to know for sure. It can, these things can be prompted by, by early life experiences. They can also be, um, you know, there are genetics predispositions uh, scientists think there's there's an evolutionary explanation for some of this stuff a lot of the most classic phobias are sort of like logical fears uh, on hyperdrive you know and and so there's some debate about the origins it's possible that I had sort of a genetic predisposition to some sort of phobia and anxiety and and the heights is what I latched on to um, because I took a fall uh, on an escalator at Pearson Airport in Toronto when I was when I was quite small uh, and I, I uh, struggled with with escalators for way longer than I care to admit afterwards. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I think all children, uh, the escalator is one of the one of the things that all children fear in some ways, and yet you don't want to tell anyone because wow, it's sort of part of growing up, right? You see your older people just jump right on, and as a child, you're thinking that's moving way too fast for me. I'm speaking to Eva Holland, author of Nerve: Adventures in the Science of Fear, and a correspondent for Outside Magazine, uh, based in Whitehorse. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about why the anticipation of fear or the anticipation of something happening is often worse than the event itself, and also a bit more about techniques to help you conquer fears and anxieties. Well, that'll come up right after this. I'm back with Eva Holland, author of Nerve, Adventures in the Science of Fear, and correspondent for Outside Magazine, based in Whitehorse. I know you, this is a quote, but the it's true, the anticipation of something scary is often worse than the event itself. How did you, when you were started this research, how did you, how true was that, did you find? So much of my research for the book was kind of finding things that explained, you know, finding statements or, or facts in the research that that explained something I'd experienced but never been able to express, you know, like I didn't, I never thought about fear as the anticipation of pain until I read that that definition from, from the 19th century. And I thought, yes, of course, that's it. It's all about, you know, the the flinch or the cringe or the the brace before something bad that you're that you're expecting or thinking about or, you know, fearing. Uh, that covers fear of grief, of grief and loss. That covers fear of, you know, an accident or a hurricane. Um, fear of ripping a bandaid off. It's it's really kind of a catch-all definition, and I thought it was just brilliant. What have you found? You talked to about about good and bad fears. That there are fears that seem irrational that you sort of I think understand inherently are irrational. And then there's that sort of fear that it's your it's essentially your your spidey senses, so to speak. Yeah, I think this is the real trick is is parsing when we should be afraid. So much of our culture tells us to stuff down feelings of fear almost regardless of what they are. 
Um, and it's really tricky to, to think, when am I being unreasonable? When am I being paranoid? When am I being sensible? Uh, when am I being wise? You know, it's, um, I think that's, that's the thing that I found hardest to, to think about in my own situation and to, to offer, you know, any concrete advice for anyone else. But I, for me, it came down to um, when fear sort of freezes me in place, I often need to give myself a talking to and say, okay, you're, you're fine. This is unreasonable. You can move through this. But when fear prompts me to move, it more often when I looked back on it, it was, was a, a good thing that I was, that I was taking action, that I was you know, taking evasive maneuvers or whatever the, whatever the case may be. And, and that for me seemed like a distinction that maybe would help people. I, I imagine so. Yeah, I, I think sometimes you need to trust your senses, right? That's kind of the you know tr- trust trust your instincts, so to speak. Um, we're obviously living in a time of heightened anxiety. One feels if it wasn't the pandemic, it's talk of you know climate change and the impacts of climate change. Um, now we have a war. When you look at the current at world events unfolding now, how do how do you what advice do you give, or, or how do you process what's happening right now? I, like everyone else, you know, struggle between, you know, staring at the news or social media for too long and, and getting really anxious or, or sort of, you know, numbing myself with a binge watch on Netflix. Um, we all have our, our less healthy ways of coping, but I think it's important to be aware of what's happening in our bodies. You know, when you're reading the news and you feel your chest tightening and your, and your breath shortening to sort of stop and say to yourself, okay, I'm, I'm feeling anxiety. And like, like you said, you know, take a deep breath, take a, take a pause, stretch your, stretch your arms, stretch your legs. Um, I think acknowledging where we're at is, is one step towards sort of uh, managing those feelings in a, in a healthier way, you know, saying, okay, maybe I'm going to go, you know, look at a 10 minute yoga YouTube video instead of watching any more tweets about nuclear war. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we have to know where we're at in order to take action. So at the end of this, I know the journey continues, but you set out to sort of find out more about fears and anxieties and maybe not conquer them, but at least learn to live with them. How successful has it been? I was shocked by how successful my uh, sort of personal quest was that, that this book documents. You know, I thought I'd be writing kind of a wishy-washy epilogue where I'd say, oh, well, I didn't, you know, I didn't fix my fears, but gosh, didn't we learn a lot of science along the way? Yeah. <laughs> um, that's the trick to writing a book when you don't know how it ends. But, but actually, I found that I was really able to make a lot of change in my relationship with fear and, and to feel like I was healthier and had tools and coping mechanisms and a better understanding, um, which was a really nice bonus of, of working on this book. How did that manifest itself? So, for example, for example, um, you know, the EMDR therapy was so effective uh, for me that I I no longer hyperventilate while driving on the highway, <laughs> which is right. a big positive life change, uh, especially in Whitehorse. Um, yeah, especially in Whitehorse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some there's some winter driving involved in living up here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and more broadly, you know, one of the the themes that run through the book is also about, about the connection between grief and fear. And I, by the end of the book, I felt more equipped to face, you know, future grief. A part of the book is about my mom's death a few years ago. And, and I know that I will lose other people I love in future. And that really scared me. Uh, and now, you know, it's not something I look forward to, but I feel better equipped now to, to move through those future, future griefs in, in a healthier way. 
Because I, I know it started, the book sort of started out with this fear of heights and the fear, fear of death, fear of death of a loved one, your mom in, in particular. And those are two things I think a lot of people, well, specifically the second one, a lot of people fear. And you feel like at least you've learned to live with those fears now. I think so. Yeah. You know, the, the pandemic has, has thrown a wrench into my Zen state a couple of times. Um, but I, I feel better, better equipped now for sure to, to sort of have a, um, I stopped thinking about it as conquering my fears and more about, you know, building a healthier relationship or partnership with, with fear uh, because it is necessary too, right. It's, it's important to our survival to feel fear. That's why we, that's why we have it. And so finding sort of a healthier relationship, uh, made sense to me more than this sort of language of conquest or defeat. Yeah. The analogy of the Kool-Aid man busting through the wall, the Kool-Aid jug is probably a fitting one and one that we probably shouldn't follow when it comes when it comes to fear, as satisfying as the imagery may be. Eva Holland, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me, Ben.